News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to F-A-Q NYC. It's me, Professor Christina Greer, here with Harry Siegel. Harry Siegel. Wait. Let's start that one more time. Welcome to FAQ NYC. Hello, Professor Christina Greer, and hello. It's me, Ozzy Pabra. He's back. I left FAQ NYC to join a family-run newspaper called The New York Times, where I write a newsletter called New York Today. Sign up. And here he is to talk to us about everything happening in New York today. The Blasio's mayoral race, uh, the odds of being eaten by different animals, and everything else you need to know to get smart. Let's get to it. Welcome back, Ozzy. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back, Ozzy. I didn't think you guys would ever ask. (laughs) Oh, we miss you terribly. Ozzy, there's a lot happening in New York that we should talk about. We're going to have a buffet of a show the things that are going on today in honor of Ozzy's newsletter, New York Today. You should find this website, newyorkyawktimes.com, <laughs> and uh, sign up if you're not already. It's a great read to just uh, really have a sense of everything that's going on in the city, politically, culturally, shark-wise, uh, and otherwise each morning. Animals, transit, politics, we do it all. And, uh, and the crossword at the very – Exactly. In, which is great. Mini crossword. And the diary. Oh, the Metropolitan Diary, Mm -hmm. which readers write and writers read. Hmm. I used to love the Metropolitan Diary, and then I just felt it was a little Upper West Side for me. Are you saying— I used to be obsessed with it, and sometimes the stories now make me very angry. Which is actually kind of fascinating because that is sort of the emotional resonance that someone I interviewed this week— used to describe the New York Post. How was that for a segue? Wait, what? I'm so confused. So after 45 years, a veteran of the New York Post, David Seifman, retired. Mm-hmm. He started out as a copy boy, a part-time copy boy, which is a, a title they called everyone below a certain rank. Boy or girl. Boy or girl. And for many years, he was the city hall bureau chief. And in the last couple of years, he was their politics editor. Now, just imagine that job. Um, And he announced last month that he was retiring. And this week, I interviewed him just to get his take on his career, the media landscape, and just his thoughts about the institution he he worked for. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he said was that um, there's very few people who feel in between about the New York Post. You either love it or hate it. Hate it. Go ahead. (laughs) And he said, interestingly, that that was part of its key to survival. Now, having an owner with a lot of money that keeps funding it obviously helps. But Seifman told me that he, he travels the country and whenever he does, he picks up local papers and very few of them have the kind of distinct personality and identity as the New York Post. Love it or hate it, you sort of can identify it. And he said that was one of the early innovations of the New York Post under Murdoch in that that sort of helped the paper, particularly in this kind of day and age when there's so much competition for attention. So the mm. way you describe the Metropolitan Diary, you used to love it, now you sort of hate it. It it just reminded me of, of what Seifman had told me. Hmm. Seifman's a pretty incredible journalist. I remember being at the John Haggerty trial when uh, this political operative who ended up working for Trump after he got out of prison 
But anyways, he was on trial for stealing from Mayor Michael Bloomberg when Mayor Michael Bloomberg gave him bribe money um, and ended up having to testify there. And Seifman was there. And this was sort of a story he'd broken to the point where as, as a, a guy who was never looking to be part of the news, you know, he's, he's like a real part of the trial. And his, his name's coming up. And as he's sitting there, and it was just sort of a marker of how you penetrate into news that matters. I mean, I would argue that Murdoch's innovation was being willing to lose 20 million or so a year, mm-hmm. which makes it a lot easier to be like, we want everyone to hate the paper right. when the idea of needing people to buy it and advertise in it doesn't work according to any market formula. With, with respect to that trial, uh, the way David Seipin sort of came about that was that he was just looking through public finance documents for the campaign, for Michael Bloomberg's campaign. And he sees a very large expenditure from, I think it was Michael Bloomberg directly to the state party in that the state party, uh, the independence party then paid somebody else. And and then Seifman asked the head of the party, who was that person you gave $1.1 million to? And the head of the party goes, I don't know. And, and Seifman says, you don't know who you gave a million dollars to? And like that kind of question sort of crystallized how bizarre this financial transaction was. And that's sort of the linchpin to the campaign was that somebody was using a, a state party apparatus as a pass-through. And even the head of the party wasn't quite sure what was going on. And that in, in some ways is like quintessential Seifman, like following money, you know, dollars and cents, asking people about it. And when somebody gives a nonsensical kind of answer – that's you know the most fair question you could ask is like what do you mean you don't know who you gave a million dollars to how many of us would love to be in that position mm-hmm. um, so so Seifman sort of followed that story and that's what leads to the Haggerty trial and this like bizarro post election scandal that followed uh, Michael Bloomberg's reelection which he himself I I believe he was called to testify the, the mayor at at that trial he was yeah. and, and all of his top staffers they were very unhappy about that. I was in, in the courtroom. The Independence Party in New York, it's just for people who think they're registered as independent right. because of how fusion voting and stuff works here. Right. So the really cool thing is that the New York Party, the New York City Party, there's this uh, there's this therapist um, who's like, I must, um, I must probably have sex with you as part of your therapy, Fred Newman. And then Lenora Fulani, who, who's like um, a real progressive of the sort of allies with Pat Buchanan. <laughs> and, and the, 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 she ran for president. Correct. Wonderfully wackadoo, unbelievably shady characters. And then our, our prim Red Sox loving mayor, which becomes a, a disturbing New York tradition, having to yeah. testify – about all of this shady stuff. Okay, can we bring it back? I mean, I feel like I've got two of the best newsmen in the room. Let's talk about some news. What do we want to talk about? Rats, sharks, bears, goats. Are sharks going to eat us, Ozzy? And are rats going to eat us? So there has been a lot of animal news recently. Have you there, seen the goats? I have not seen the goats. but So there are goats in Riverside Park to eat away at invasive species, which are plant life that destroy other plants that make the park less desirable for people. So the environmentally friendly, fun way to deal with it is to bring in goats to eat them all. And as one person told me, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for the goats. And humans get the benefit of that. Um, Well, there were thousands of people yesterday to see the goats. Yeah. And someone wrote that hopefully de Blasio can transport some of these people to actually come to his rallies. (laughs) But um, bum. 
know, you know, it used to be the idea that if you had food, people would show up to your event. Now, if you have animals, yeah, maybe maybe that's a thing. The Blasio killed a groundhog. Oh, and but didn't covered Bloomberg? up its gender. But didn't Bloomberg kill the ground? You remember he dropped a groundhog too. Survived. <laughs> oh, it survived. The shorter, shorter fall helped kill a deer. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. The Blasio helped kill a deer. There was a big fight with Andrew Cuomo. Oh, I the deer that. did die happily. Right. Um, and the Blasio became mayor by defeating Joe Loda, who vowed that he would have the trains just run over the kittens if necessary. So I think. And what about horse carriages? The Blasio wants to save the horses, or, or at least wants to take the, the under the table money from the people who want to save the horses. Could you could you give us a little more on the trains rolling over the kittens? So so Joe Loda is, is is he's run the MTA, he's running for mayor, and um, at some point it comes up. There's kittens on the track, and Joe Loda's like, and I paraphrase here, you know, at a certain point trains just got to run, kittens on the track or otherwise. So the Postwood the next day, I believe, is uh, or no, the Daily News is uh, die, kitties, die. Um, de Blasio beats him handily, but then, then he goes on his own animal murdering spree. J- just a, a, a fun that fact. running for president. Yeah. Just a fun fact about that Daily News, die, kitty, die. Do you, know what, do you know what the Daily News did the very next day? Endorsed Joe Loda. So hmm. that I thought was a pretty remarkable moment in like New York history. It was that the same paper that said this guy's going to kill a kitty by, like, run, by having the train run over it. He's also the guy we want for mayor. Hmm. So it, it, it was either the next day or that day. It, it, was, it was within yeah. a 24-hour period. F-A-Q. You, you know, people always say that Anthony Weiner elected Bill de Blasio, which I'll give some of that. However, this is where people keep underestimating Bill de Blasio. Bill de Blasio is like 10 for 10 in these elections. Like, we keep saying it's luck. At a certain point in time, we need to recognize that this man is at least partially a shark. Like, he's not a total doofus. And I think a lot of people underestimate him, and then they find themselves unemployed and losing races majorly. So so there was a, I believe it was a Quinnipiac poll during the 2013 mayor's race. Um, I'm forgetting when exactly this specific poll I'm about to reference came out. But there was a poll that showed, uh, if you ask New York City voters who they preferred as a mayoral candidate for 2013, Bill de Blasio was coming in fourth place, basically last. Solid. And All time. there was another set of numbers that I saw but did not write about, but I can remember. Because so many voters had no opinion of so many of the candidates, there was a small number of people who were making preferences. Mm-hmm. If you only looked at people who said that they are well aware of the candidates' records and you only looked at that very small group, among people who knew about the candidates, de Blasio was in first place in that very small subset, which signaled to me there was a way of describing de Blasio, at least on paper, mm-hmm. you know, check boxes and paraphrasing of, of records and stuff. There was a way of describing him that was very appealing to a key constituency, this very highly engaged, interested, likely to show a voter who's, who's well aware of the candidates. But it was this idea of breaking through the noise. Remember, Christine Quinn was considered the establishment candidate, the best known. She she got the cover of New York Magazine and the New York Post. She had been getting a lot of attention. She had very high name recognition. 
And the the idea that de Blasio, this tall guy, small office, hasn't really produced anything very tangible, the idea that any subset of voters would say, hey, that's the one that we really like, it, it should have been bigger news. And looking back on it, it, it should have been something that we paid a little bit more attention to early on. Right. Well, I mean, also, you know, people forget de Blasio was an organizer. So like when de Blasio, the organizer, shows up, you can't underestimate that. He's not just kind of an empty suit politician, even though a lot of people think that. And so when we say like, oh, you know, it's all because of Wiener, I mean, I, I definitely think that had Wiener not imploded, we might have at least have had a runoff of some sort. But I mean, the fact that this man was in a race with four other well-known Democrats, three of whom were elected citywide, right? Lou Thompson and de Blasio. Wiener had, you know, D.C. experience. Quinn, essentially, you know, the speaker somewhat feels like a citywide elected position, even though you're elected by your colleagues. But like for him to beat the four of them with zero runoff made me recognize that this man has sharper political instincts and a dash of luck, but like... The underestimation piece follows him constantly. And do you think that's happening nationally right now? Like, if you were if you were betting, are the odds on De Blasio so low right now that he's he's worth putting some long shot money on? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I haven't been to Iowa, um, but we know that people's careers die with deflated expectations, right? So I always think about like Jesse Jackson, 1988, he was supposed to go into Wisconsin and like blow it out the water. You know, he's in sort of first place or close second place and he's killing it. So it's like, as long as he, you know, does well in Wisconsin, like he'll be the nominee. And then when he doesn't win Wisconsin, the media and just sort of the deflated expectations just completely destroy his chances. And it's like, it's over right then and there, right? Even though he's still in several states. With de Blasio, no one's expecting him to win, you know, because he's at anything, not even dog catcher, right? So that means if he comes in, say, fourth place in Iowa, it's like, huh, that's interesting. And then if he, you know, has a decent showing in South Carolina, because no one's expecting him to do well, the inflated expectations all of a sudden make him a thing. Thinking about Bill Clinton in 1992, Bill Clinton does not do well in Iowa, and so he's dead in the water. And then when he comes in, what, second place or third place in um, New Hampshire in 1992? So because his because of the deflated expectations of Clinton, when he does show up in New Hampshire, it's like, who is this guy? Right. Wait a minute. Let's like pay attention for a second. Right. And But I believe Clinton's uh, showing in New Hampshire was – just after around the time of one of the scandals erupts, I believe Jennifer Flowers. So the idea wasn't just that he placed higher than expectations. It was that uh, a scandal about his personal life comes out. And this is the sort of scandal that had previously knocked out so many other presidential candidates. Lesser had, things. Had, <laughs> right. Other out. candidates have been knocked out right. for, for lesser things. Uh, most notably, Gary Hart was taken out not that many years earlier for something similar. No, when, so, no, 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 not even similar. When, he was yeah, seen on a boat called yes. the monkey business. He called, wasn't even doing monkey business. <laughs> right. But but the idea that Clinton fights through that, that right. scandal makes him able to sort of argue that his showing in New Hampshire was better than expected. Therefore, the, the notion of a comeback kid starts getting crystallized and that everybody wants to be with the winner. Right. Things start coalescing. I think with de Blasio, you're hitting on something that's really interesting. There are these low expectations. There is this idea that he's so low that if he beats anyone, right. it, it's, it's, it's almost considered a victory. And there's this other thing that's happening. 
uh, in today's politics, you need a certain amount of money to go forward, but there doesn't seem to be a really immediate or obvious moment when you pull the plug. If you're sort of in it to raise your profile, to sort of to sort of cash in on some capital that you think you have, you could, you know, as long as funders enough give you give you money, you could sort of keep going. And there's no real shame in coming in fourth or fifth mm-hmm. and, and sort of continuing on until you sort of say, you know what, I, I've decided right. to have enough. You, he could potentially keep on going without finishing in the top two or three for as long as he and whatever pool of funders he has think it is worth it. I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Well, I agree 1,000%, but here's here's also the thing, right? So, yes, he can show up. I think as long as he shows up in, like, the top five for the first three races, you know, as you and I saw when we guest judged at uh, the SEPA class, you know, you don't need $100 million right now. You need it later on, but, like... If he uses his organizing skills, he can do a lot with less money. But, like, let's also be clear. He is the mayor of New York City. There will be a lot of people who are willing to give him some money because they want to have a relationship with the mayor of New York City because they have business in front of the city of New York or they want to have business in the city of New York. So his fundraising, I think, is actually there is a path to fundraising because he's the mayor of New York City. He's not, you know, the governor of Colorado or Washington State or, you know, all these other offshoot wannabe Kennedys. And I think the framing, too, for de Blasio is he's so low, anything he does will be like, you know, if he gets 5%, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, he was at one before. Whereas we already see the framing of someone like Beto, where the stories are coming out. There was a story in the Daily Beast yesterday. It's like, you know, when did he implode? You know, like, why do we hate this man all of a sudden? It's like, he's a loser. And so the framing of, say, Beto is... He went from being interesting to being a loser. De Blasio <laughs> kind of goes in the race. It's like, nobody wants you here. We don't want nobody who nobody sent, you know? And then if he does a little bit better than expected. Momentum. Perception. Momentum. Speaking of the New York Post, they're going to mock him every single day he's out of town. He's going to be out of town for a while, a lot of days. Speaking of Quinnipiac, he has an 8% favorable rating. He's under 10% with young people, old people, black people, white people. He's at 14% with Democrats. That's the only place he cracks double digits. These are not good numbers. And it's not that nobody knows who he is. It's 8% favorable to 45% unfavorable. Those are striking numbers. Uh, I think Chrissy is totally right that he needs to— Let's say that again. (laughs) Chrissy is is, is mind-blowingly right— like so right, I can't fully take it in. I might, I might be, I have some sort of contact high from the rightness. So De Blasio nicely came on the podcast, and he ended up on national television. Like, can we have him on again? And he's like, will you stop calling him a criminal in your columns? I was like, well, no. And uh, he hasn't come back on, and now he's running for president. So good, good for him. Look, De Blasio had to shut down his fundraising operation here. He was supposed to pay back his massive legal debts in defending that from the federal prosecutors who like, are like, this guy clearly violated the spirit of the law. We can't quite charge him. And now he's got a brand new fundraising operation and he can raise money from people who are doing business with the city. He didn't give up his first 24-hour fundraising numbers, which all these campaigns do because presumably they were Butkus. Butkus. And that Butkus was like two bribers and no small donors. So he, he 
urgently needs some sort of way to get cash in to pay for even his small handful of operatives and not the oil crew from 2013. The, well, the, the, the good thing is we're the ones who are paying for his uh, his detail and all their overtime right. as citizens of New York City. So, so but 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 the de Blasio candidacy, I think, raises a really interesting question, at least in my mind. He is the mayor of the largest city in the country. Pretty important job, arguably, right? And then the person before him, Michael Bloomberg. Is Brooklyn in the house? Yeah. I thought so. Was mayor for three terms of the biggest city in the country. And if you look at a, at a in a broad way, crime went down, economy went up. You give credit to the person who was there at the time that that happens, right? You can sort of quibble and argue about reasons and cause and effect. But if that credential was good enough for Michael Bloomberg to sort of say, hey, think of me as a, as a presidential candidate along with my billions of dollars, what does it say about municipal government that the mayor of the largest city in the country where most indicators are going in the right direction? Most, not all. What does it say about that mayor that they're not taken as seriously as a top-tier presidential candidate when you have other people in the race that have legislative records that may not exactly translate to the job of being an executive in Washington that deals with a legislature? It says we have an electoral college. And going back to John Lindsay. Um, uh, his name is Hot John Lindsay. Going back to smoking hot John Lindsay, who, who was tall like de Blasio, but even with de Blasio's new makeover, I would say as a, uh, as a straight cis guy, like considerably sexier. Um, fair? Hot John Lindsay? Yeah. Indeed. Sorry, sorry, Bill. But we have an electoral college. There's not actually a constituency yet for all the Democrats who are clustered in very big cities right. and in blue states for America's mayor. Uh, to borrow a term from another New York mayor who ran for mayor as so anointed by Oprah. Right. But, but Harry, but that's an electability argument. What about the, the actual sort of functions of the job? We have senators and governors who historically have been the path to sure. the presidency. Obviously, governors are a better fit in the sense that they're executives. So this is where de Blasio and Mayor Pete are making the argument that, you know, like I manage just a smaller version of what the government would be, whereas senators are sort of like, meh, you know, I'm interesting. They have some governors where they're, they're single-issue governors in a lot of ways. De Blasio, unfortunately, though, because New York City has this reputation of being this anomaly as to what America is, this is why we see this disconnect with some 37-year-old from a town of 100,000 people getting lots of attention, largely because Liz Smith is a shark, but also, you know, he's got this personality, but he is doing this sort of like, I'm from the America that we all know and love, whereas de Blasio seems like he's from, you know, the America that's not necessarily... Uh, part of this, I would say, this kind of white narrative of like, you know, the good old days nonsense. To, to, to get into, to answer Ozzy's yeah. question and get into the good New York weeds here, this is crazy. But if de Blasio had managed somehow to get his good cup of coffee a day tax to pay for universal pre-K, he would have something to run on. He doesn't have any other real accomplishments. And I can go over this thing by thing as he's listing them. It's this wage that was actually passed by the uh, council. The thing he led was calling for a tax to pay for a new year of functionally public education and child care. He didn't get the tax. If he got that, he can say, I've taken money and I've distributed it in a better way and it's a model for America. Without that, he has a laundry list of stuff that's gone pretty good under his watch that he's not entirely responsible for. 
and he doesn't have a, a signature thing, and he's tried. So Charlene's Thrive thing, in addition to being another weirdo money pool and like an attempt to set her up for a run of her own, was supposed to be his smoking thing. Right, like Bloomberg is, is like, I saved all these lives with smoking. And he's, he's obnoxious and nasally about it. Is Brooklyn in the house? Yeah. I thought so. We could put a number on it and it was a real and quantifiable thing. When they first announced Thrive, I was on the phone for, for that intro call. And all these reporters are like, this is great. This is wonderful. You know, like people who aren't severely mentally ill, who have, have real, real issues and don't have a lot of money, they should be able to get help. It's like, what are you going to be measuring? What are the inputs? What are the outputs? And they're like, bleh, bleh, bleh. And they're like you know, we, we have a million units of unhappy. And we're pretty sure that in two years, we'll have 600,000 units of unhappy. I have the audio of this. I can, I can try and find it. It was incredible. And by the end of the call, people weren't angry. They're just like, what is this? And that, that's a lot of his merity. There's just not a lot that he's actually accomplished past, speaking of New York being an anomaly, our economy not really getting hit in 2008. Like everything the Chicken Shit Club did was, was to the benefit of New York. Revenue has gone up. There's a little more money to go around and things haven't collapsed. That's not enough. Pre-K, without, without the tax part for, for the pitch he's making, that I saw this progressive wave rising, I helped shape it, isn't enough. So, so you have a fairly unaccomplished mayor who is enough of a shark and enough of an operator that, that he, he wins without a, a runoff in a crowded field, that he handily wins re-election, and that things haven't collapsed on his watch. But that doesn't amount to a, a positive case for running. And, and someone like Mayor Pete, you know, be, because he runs a nothing town, him and what army? You know, Bloomberg used to boast, I have an army, you know, fifth largest army in the world with the NYPD. Yeah. You know, he, he's like a McKinsey consultant done sort of good who can't run for anything else in his state and win because his state isn't blue. So he says, hey, why not? And, you know, plainly the bar for presidential runs has, has gone dramatically down in recent cycles. So there is a why not me aspect to this, and that's playing out early. And we know after Trump not to take this stuff for granted, but it's very hard for me to see what positive case de Blasio articulates. And finally, let me just say that for this competent organizer, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to know how to frame a, a, a Twitter video so that it's not your tie talking before you run. You're supposed to have a website. When you're thinking about running for six months and you're like, I'll get back to you about my policy agenda, we're going to have something coming about housing in New York, you know, you're not doing this right. I thought a big part of the reason that New York mayors were not taken seriously in presidential elections was the job description that New York mayor could have is largely hamstrung by a pathologically domineering state government. The job of a New York City mayor is pick up the garbage, plow the streets, you know, direct cops and how to keep crime down. It, In its very core function, it's a very uh, – granular type of operation. And in order to do larger initiatives and to pay for larger initiatives, you need revenue. You need money, which which often means taxing. Well, the ability for New York City to tax its residents is very limited and you have to go to the state government. So when you have a strong governor, and New York definitely has one, in terms of statutory power but also in personality, then you have the role of the mayor sort of shrink in some ways. The mayor can't even sign a bill by the New York City Council to put a five-cent tax on plastic bags, right? The governor stepped in and said, we're going to do a statewide plan, not a New York City-specific plan. Uh, New York City really can't raise 
minimum wages on its own, the state sort of steps in and says, we're going to do a tiered sort of system that New York City goes first, surrounding areas get a little bit higher as the years go on. So to prevent things from getting out of scale, the governor often steps in and says, we're going to do a statewide plan. Well, that diminishes the role of a mayor in some ways. So therefore, what's the ma- what can the mayor do? The mayor can do a lot. New York has eight and a half million people. The state has less than 20 million people now. There's no other state city that comes close. Uh, Chicago is next and it, it's way it's, – it's a way lesser share. And because the governor and the state lawmakers have these really broad powers in the city's a creation of the state, they can't be action man in the same way. Andrew Cuomo is trying very hard to change that and that's why there's state troopers all around New York City now. People are like, Huh? Um, because he wants to be the, 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 the action man who shows up at the scene in a good windbreaker and is does stuff. <laughs> but that's not actually the job and that is the mayor's job. And that's why New York mayors always think this is a launching pad and they've been wrong for a very long time now for, for higher office. Um, you know, Lindsay and his advertisements, which are wonderful, his TV ads, I was just watching them. One of his taglines is this is the second toughest job in America. And that's not a bad way to uh, to put it. Uh, the catch is that, that much of the country is pretty deeply suspicious of New York City and New York values, as you might recall from Ted Cruz using that as a slur in 2016, aimed at uh, Donald J. Trump, uh, exemplar thereof. But it's tough. We, we've not had a mayor go to any higher office in my lifetime and well beyond. Yeah, it, it, it's it's sort of a rare instance when a New York City mayor goes on to higher office. I, I don't think it's happened in the last 100 years or so. Yeah. I mean, because Koch was already in Congress before he became right. mayor. Dinkins, you know, goes off to Columbia. Bloomberg's a billionaire. Rudy's useless. And here we are. Rudy um, was the presidential frontrunner. Look he's, at him now. He's worse than useless. I mean, listen, Rudy, 9-11, Giuliani. I mean, that's the thing. Thank goodness he wasn't mayor after 9-11 because we would be living in a police state and it would have been horrible. Like, so I'm so glad. Like, honestly, you know, I have issues with Bloomberg, but he went the economic route. Rudy has, you know, sort of dictatorial tendencies. There's a reason why Rudy Giuliani was to David Dinkins the same thing that Donald Trump was to Barack Obama. They're both deeply insecure, deeply racist, and they think that, you know, sort of the role of the executive is the role of like a draconian king. So thank goodness the citizens of New York and Michael Bloomberg were like, yeah, you don't actually need a third term. Like, let's figure this out after 9-11. That's my analysis. Rudy wanted an additional 90 days after 9-11 and didn't get them. This sort of sets the track for Bloomberg's entire mayorality because Giuliani would have put money into rebuilding downtown and Ground Zero, which ends up getting lagged, I think, for over a decade. Um, And instead... Bloomberg, with an eye on running for the presidency, um, pushes very hard to get the Olympics, and that's the big narrative of his first term, as his Trojan horse for redeveloping the far west sides, where his mm-hmm. former deputy mayor, Dan Doctoroff, has just been instrumental in getting Hudson Yards built. Um, yep. And I think just the geographic and real estate history of the city would have been very different. And incredibly, Giuliani, who had terrible dictatorial tendencies, and we've sort of seen what he's become. I think given that very limited stretch of time 
and having pot committed us to actually rebuilding downtown quickly and not having this go to a bunch of super weird outside agencies that weren't quite run by the state, the city, or anyone else that drained lots of money there while all the, the political interests went to this other development site, that this could have actually been a very healthy thing. Um, except for the fact that every single brown person would be in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> like, except for that fact, right? He would have rounded, like, Rudy Giuliani would have rounded we're, up we're, we're talking as about many. 90, 90, yeah, 90, 90 you can do a lot in 90 days. Mm. You can. And P.S., by the by, I've always said this about Bloomberg, and I hate the fact that I'm right, but whenever people would ask me about Bloomberg and him running for president, I would always say, Please remember how anti-Semitic this country is and, like, wrap your mind around that. Like, think about some of the conversations that were had, not had, when Joe Lieberman was Al Gore's running mate. And so no one really sort of picked up on what I was trying to say. And now we realize, like, um, yeah, I'm right, per usual. Dictator Rudy wanted 90 days for a very specific thing. Pretty decent guy, Mike Bloomberg, who absolutely would have run into a buzzsaw of anti-Semitism. would be a George Soros-like figure right now mm-hmm. um, in the eyes of much of the uh, the right had he actually run. You know, ran for a third term because there was a crisis. And then when he's running and he's like, there is no crisis. And some, some, some asshole reporter is like, uh, why are you still running, man? Um, and that reporter is a disgrace. That was one of my best questions ever. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot you're a disgrace. That's me. Um, but <laughs> but the but when you mentioned Rudy Giuliani as a front runner of the presidential race, um, it is also worth remembering the story that helped dislodge him, or or helped start chipping away at that notion, was a New York story written mm-hmm. by Ben Smith, who started at the New York Sun, went to the Observer, then the Daily News. Uh, Politico, and then someplace called BuzzFeed. Um, ben had written a story that said Giuliani, when he was traveling to Long Island as mayor, he would often basically the cost of all that traveling was put on the books for a little known entity called the Loft Board. Um, why was he traveling to Long Island? There was at the time his future ex-wife. There was a person living there who Giuliani later married, and the story sort of suggests that there was financial impropriety, romance, money, power, like all these things that make for like really good stories. Yeah. That's but, a great pickup line. Like, hi, I'm your future ex-wife. <laughs> I don't know how much that would work, oh, but uh, that, um, you can go and try it. Like, right. let's see. But – but the idea was that it was a New York story from his own backyard that sort of mm-hmm. like helped chip away at this image of Rudy who up until that time was, was, seen was as, revered yeah. as America's mayor. The post 9-11 sort of response and a, and a symbol of resilience at a time when New York sort of needed and really wanted something that looked strong. And also remember there were moments where Giuliani did things that made him also appear um, – I don't want to say emotional, but 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 offered people something more than just strength. Like he walked a bride down the aisle shortly afterwards, 9-11. And it was one of those things that it was on the front page of the post. And the picture sort of gave people an emotional sort of connection to him. Yeah. So so there was a lot that was sort of in the atmosphere at that time. But, you know, it, it, it just sort of shows to me at least the power of like good journalism to sort of – alter what to, to alter the course of events that people 
can't even imagine. Ozzy, I think that's a great note to uh, to wrap up on. Um, I have one more thing to ask. Uh, we're just going to whitening round here. Um, uh, New Yorkers, uh, Ozzy is here to tell you how likely you are to be eaten by a shark. Mm. Not very. Rat. Possibly. It depends <laughs> if you're gentrifying a neighborhood or not. <laughs> Goat? Not likely unless you're an invasive species. Thank you, GOAT, for joining us. That's an acronym. And um, we'll see you uh, next week in Queens uh, for our candidates forum there. Um, More details to come this week. I'm going back to the borough of my birth. You were born in Queens? Well, I was born in Manhattan, technically at a hospital. Ah. But I was like, you know, we lived in Queens and Hollis. Yeah, so Donald Trump and I have two things in common. We were both born and raised in Queens. And well, I mean, I moved when I was five. But we're both born and raised in Queens, and we both have heel spurs. Other than that, we diverge. Ozzy, thank you again. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Thanks, Ozzy. Thank you. We miss you. Bonus material. Bonus material. Completing the theory of everything. So so squint for just a little, right? And and step away from 2016. When Occupy Wall Street happens, this is treated as like this big national story. When, in fact, it's pretty obviously an international one and and it ties in with the color revolutions and with the Arab Spring and with these new organizing techniques that are sort of politically agnostic. We've had all of these stunning elections. That's why Trump, before he wins and people are like, oh, you know, clearly he's had another stroke, is, is, you know, Mr. Brexit, Mr. Brexit. But all these stunning outcomes last week in Australia where the conservative party that was so counted out that – Bookies paid off ahead of the election that they've lost. One, uh, we've seen in Brazil, we've seen here, we've seen with Brexit, all of these stunning votes that are against the globalists, if you will, and I, I will not. But that momentum is all gone in one direction. Clearly, a lot of the old political realities are, are breaking down, but I, I don't think it just means that everyone has some, some puncher's chance Things seem to be breaking in a a series of directions in which angry, rejectionist, conservative politics are able to cobble together just barely winning coalitions while other people are panicked about that. Speaking of the Pulitzer-worthy John Edwards and the Pulitzer-worthy National Enquirer, you know, it sort of blew my mind when Trump gave the uh, Presidential Medal of uh, whatever. This is my United States of whatever. of, Of super awesomeness to Tiger Woods, given Trump's own close alignment with the now up for sale National Enquirer and uh, the fact that the uh, Pulitzer-worthy Enquirer, if I recall, is also who who broke the news about Tiger and his uh, creepy, crazy life. It's just all very strange. Um, And David Patterson is marrying his former radio partner, uh, Curtis Sliwa's most recent ex-wife, while Curtis Sliwa's longtime girlfriend during said marriage, Melinda Katz, is probably the frontrunner to be the next district attorney in Queens. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, keep it together, man, it's all going to come together, has endorsed uh, Tiffany Caban, the very progressive insurgent competitor, and we will be in Queens next week to moderate a forum about that race where we can ask all of these questions. I feel like you just did the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> but instead of superheroes, you just did American and New York media and yeah. politics going from like 
the extra wide shot, zooming in really, really close to a Queen's DA race, then pulling it back out. Yeah. And I feel like to finish that metaphor, like that would make the that would make the Queen's DA race like endgame. Well, then what would that make us? I'm just that's what I'm. Oh, that's you know, I'm Stan Lee. Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy, you got to call someone. I mean, Storm, because she's the black girl. I don't know. Like, I don't know who any of these people are. Everyone's just in tights running all the time, and everything's exploding, and no one has any scratches on them. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at NYU's McSilver Institute, and FAQ is brought to you by Harry Siegel and me, Christina Greer. McSilver Institute is where we're headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. A special thank you to Ozzie Pabra of the New York Times and our former FAQ NYC co-host. And also a thank you to producer Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this episode. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into the FAQ for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all. Take care. Ozzy, it's been six months since you left this show to uh, go find yourself in America, I believe. Uh, are there any other uh, anniversaries we might want to be noting right about now? May 21st would have been Christopher Wallace's 47th birthday. You may know him as the Notorious B.I.G. And May 23rd is the six-year anniversary of Anthony Weiner's campaign kickoff for mayor. You, you want to put the word ill-fated in there or no? <laughs> <laughs>